Father Jim Castigar isn't exactly sure what he and his parish did to get on the bad side of town hall. But he's pretty certain that their meeting with the town president was the turning point. His parish is filled with Mexican-Americans, and they had some complaints about the way the local police were treating them. They presented these complaints to the town president at a big meeting in the church, and it got pretty heated. The town president got mad at them, and they got mad at her. There must have been 500 people there, and they booed. They actually booed the woman. In most towns, that would be the end of it. No big deal. Not in Cicero, Illinois. Next thing Father Castigar knew, Town Hall refused to give the church a permit to hold its annual Way of the Cross procession at Easter, a Mexican Catholic tradition they'd held peacefully for seven years. They fought. They got the permit. Then came the tamale dispute. The church youth group was going away on a retreat, and they needed to raise some money to do it. So they made, uh, stayed up all night making tamales in the hall, and, and they were out in front of church uh, selling the tamales uh, for a donation for the youth group retreat. So I'm just after Mass. I'm still vested. Come out in front of us. I was greeting people and standing on the front porch of church, and a policeman comes up and says, I have to give you a ticket, Father. I said, what for? I was quite surprised, actually. He said, it was a, the ticket read for running a business without a license. So I went to court with a, a lawyer, just a friend, um, the hearing officer said, well, you know, you're right, there's nothing in the ordinance that says that you need a license, but they clearly meant it to be in the ordinances, but it isn't. So even though it's not there, you're guilty. Uh, then the lawyer that was helping me asked if it would be necessary for a seven-year-old child selling lemonade on the street in Cicero to have a business license, and the answer was Yes. The youth group didn't give up. They decided they wanted to get a business license to sell food, fair and square. This meant hepatitis shots and a TB scan and a special training course on food sanitation. They did all that, then applied for a license. Just one hour later, they say, an inspector showed up at the church and told them they couldn't get their license until they put in a third sink and some other improvements. Then there was the parking problem. The public school near the church had always left its lot open on Sunday morning people to use when they went to Mass. That is, until the city cut off access. The director of the school, the principal, told me there was an anonymous phone call saying that people were driving through too quickly, very quickly, in the school lot on a Sunday. And my room is right above this parking lot, and I'd never seen anybody drive quickly through it, so I thought that was kind of strange. There was another anonymous phone call which said that they had Someone on Sunday morning had bumped into the fence, done damage to the school property. Well, even the principal himself told me, Father, I don't see any damage at all, but, you know, I can't do anything about it. We have to close the parking. Um, so they closed the lot. They said that the parking lot was not sound, structurally sound for parking cars. Well, it seems kind of strange since it's called a parking lot. And because the teachers park there every day, the uh, garbage trucks, big heavy garbage trucks go across, it certainly seems that the parking lot's fine. The city of Cicero insists that it is not targeting the church for political reasons, that the timing of these incidents is a coincidence, that the town president, Betty Lauren Maltese, is a Catholic herself and would never wage war via city inspectors. But longtime residents are skeptical of these kinds of explanations. 
Leo Satos moved to Cicero when he was a kid. I could put it to you simple. Hitler had the SS. The communists have the KGB. Cicero has the code enforcement. Okay? Cicero is like the Twilight Zone. I mean, these are not things that are normal towns in Illinois. You know, it's not the same in other communities. Ray Hanania was a newspaper reporter who went to work for the town as press secretary for three years. In other communities, when you get mad at the mayor, you have a dispute with them. You know, you don't go home worried about whether you're going to get sued or, you know, whether someone's going to come pounding on your door and inspect your house. You have a disagreement. And, you know, you move on, and even some people will end up being friends. In Cicero, it's like, you know, you cross the line, that's it. Cicero is just different. For most of the 20th century, there were direct links between Town Hall and the mob. For most of the 20th century, Town Hall didn't hesitate to strong-arm anybody. If city officials decided they didn't like you, you obeyed, you suffered, or you got out of town. And then, finally, Cicero got into a fight that it had trouble winning. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program... Cicero, Illinois, the story of a town in a bubble, and what happens when the bubble pops. I should say before we go any further that Cicero is just over the border on Chicago's west side. And although officially it is called a suburb, what it actually looks like is just another west side Chicago neighborhood. Working class families, brick bungalow houses. For decades, Cicero was this place that did not want outsiders moving in. That fought violently against blacks and other minorities coming to town. And then, at some point, the outsiders came anyway. In a sense, this story today is a kind of worst-case scenario. You have a town connected to the mob, notoriously racist. So what happens when the town starts to go through the kind of demographic changes that are happening everywhere else, all over America? What happens when people of other races start to show up, in large numbers? But what happened in Cicero wasn't just that the town opposed it, kicking and screaming and fighting every step of the way, though they did. It's a lot more complicated than that. Just a few weeks from now, the first week of April 2001, the town will hold elections. The same Republican political machine that has run the town for decades faces a Hispanic challenger, who the machine is likely to defeat, despite the fact that three-fourths of the town is now Hispanic. Today... We explain how that is possible. Stay with us. I am joined in this very special edition of our program by Alex Kotlowitz, who will be co-hosting the hour. He's the author of the books There Are No Children Here and The Other Side of the River, and he's an occasional contributor to our program. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Ira. So, Alex, uh, our plan here is that sometimes we're going to uh, do these stories together, sometimes we're going to trade off between us, Why don't you take us into Act 1? Sounds good. Act 1. Untouchables. To understand how Cicero handled an influx of Hispanic outsiders, you have to understand how the town traditionally dealt with conflict. And to understand that, I know this might sound strange, we have to talk about Al Capone. Al Capone moved to Cicero in 1924 when Chicago decided to crack down on the mob. In Cicero, he rigged elections with a combination of violence and kidnapping. He installed and controlled the town president. He owned the police force. 
He made Cicero into a safe haven for his businesses, which at the time employed hundreds of people. However the outside world might see Al Capone, people in Cicero remember him fondly. He was all right. We didn't kick him out of Cicero. <laughs> Here's a lady I met after Mass one Sunday at Father Castigar's church, Sophia Bannock. He took care of the poor. I mean, he didn't keep all the money for himself. He'd give out the uh, Thanksgiving baskets, food baskets, and that to the very poor families. And uh, so he helped out a lot of families. Here's Christy Burkos, who once was a town lawyer in Cicero and for a period the town president. I do remember Al Capone way back when, when I was probably five or six years old. He'd get in a little gangway uh, right off of Cicero Avenue in Cermak, and all the kids would gather there, and he would throw change in the air, and all the kids would scramble for all the change. He did it quite often, you know. You could be traveling in South America or Europe, and people will do the international sign of Cicero, the fingers like machine guns. Rat a tat. That's right. Again, the town's former press officer, Ray Hanania. You know, this perception that I would encounter all the time in Cicero was the mob did a good job of running the city. They cleaned the streets, and when the mob was in control, we got our garbage picked up. You know, our taxes were low. You know, uh, <laughs> crime was down. No, it was. It was, like, amazing. So there was People a resistance. Would say this. People would actually say yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, all the time, and, and still do. The town's connection to the mob didn't stop with Al Capone. It continued straight through to the present day. In the 90s, the town of Cicero overpaid a mob-connected insurance company $4.5 million. An investigation's still ongoing. In fact, there's been a continuous string of investigations and indictments for decades. Five indictments this year alone, including a few town officials. In 1951, Cicero became notorious for something besides Al Capone. When an African-American family moved to town, a Chicago bus driver named Harvey Clark with his wife and kids. It kicked off a three-day riot in which white mobs entered their apartment and destroyed it, pushing a piano through the wall. Police watched but did nothing. The governor had to call out the National Guard. There were other incidents as well. By the 60s, the town was known as the Selma of the North. Of course, lots of towns and neighborhoods in the 50s and 60s tried to keep blacks out. But in Cicero, they succeeded. Blacks were allowed in Cicero between 6 in the morning and 6 at night, working hours. After that, you know, you're not welcome anymore. Leo Satos and his brother Victor remember how in the 60s they and their buddies would be hanging around on the street and police would come by and then send them on little missions. Oh, sure, many times. I mean, we were just sitting around by saying it attractive and there's two officers come and said, oh, listen, you guys, there's a black person over, well, you, you know, they didn't refer to him as blacks then, but uh, he'd say, yeah, on uh, 56th and Roosevelt. And, and it's after 6 o'clock. And our job was uh, to physically escort them out of town, you know, with rocks, bricks, stones, whatever, you know. And if we didn't, well, we'd end up in jail for uh, illegal gathering or whatever. Loitering. Yeah, loitering. and that'd be the end of the story. Talking about the black people... We've always had them. Again, here's Sophia Bannock, one of the Catholic ladies I met after Mass. 
walking down 14th Street. Remember, we had National Malibu. Mm -hmm. They all worked there. They used to go into our stores and ask to butcher to make them a ham sandwich or something. Our friend had a tavern. They used to go and have a drink and cash their checks there, and they walked up and down. We thought nothing of it. In fact, we'd even say hello and everything else. We were never taught to avoid them or shun them or something. Do you think it would have been different if they had moved on the block, though? Well, that I think so, yeah. In the summer of 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. came to Chicago after his successes in the South, and he staged marches in Chicago neighborhoods that weren't far from Cicero. But when he threatened to march in Cicero, county officials warned that it would be a suicide mission. That was the phrase they used. As recently as the 1980s, a federally monitored effort to desegregate Cicero failed to lure black families to town. Around that time, a run-in between a police sergeant and one of the few African Americans who had moved to Cicero resulted in 1980s-era mandatory human relations training for the entire Cicero police force. Longtime civil rights activist Cal Williams helped organize the session. When we got there, most of the um, people came in with blue T-shirts with the lettering Cicero Police and Proud of It across them, uh, except for the sergeant, and he had his own separate T-shirt, and it said, police brutality, the fun part of police work. <laughs> and that was their message to us. So this was the environment the Mexican-Americans moved to when they arrived in Cicero, starting in the 1970s. Hostile residents, hostile officials. And this is where our story really begins. folks you meet in our town The folks you meet on any street in our town Act 2 The Inevitable It was economics that finally integrated Cicero succeeding where protest marches failed By the 70s and 80s old Cicero was disintegrating on its own Industries shutting down, grown kids moving away, the older generation dying off. Mexican-Americans wanted the houses, and realtors needed someone to sell them to. After all the violence when blacks tried to move in, if you ask longtime residents why they felt Mexican-Americans were acceptable neighbors, they often just kind of shrug and reply, well, they weren't black. Having said that, for the first wave of newcomers, things could get pretty rough. This is Frank Aguilera, whose family moved here in the 70s. First thing he did in my house was burn my garage, killed my dog, and put a swastika on my, on my doorway. Killed the dog? They poisoned him. And that was within how soon within after? About you... a week after we moved to Cicero. About 12 or 25 years ago. Why did you decide to stay? Well, I was a child, so I had no choice. Uh, why did your family decide to stay? Well, they liked Cicero. They, you know, they bought their first home. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, it's the American dream of owning their own house. In 1980, just a fraction of the town was Hispanic. By 1990, it was a third of Cicero, 
In the 2000 census, Hispanic residents make up 77% of the town. Drive on Cermak Road and what you see today is a clean, prospering community whose businesses are mostly Mexican. Groceries and banquet halls and banks with just a handful of aging storefronts that say things like, Dumpling Capital of USA. But as this population shift happened, the old guard that ran the town did everything possible to hold on. This included all sorts of things that no other towns anywhere seemed to have ever tried. And the person behind most of these efforts was the current president of Cicero, a woman named Betty Warren Maltese. She's had such a visible profile in Cicero that most everyone there now simply refers to her as Betty. Here's how she came to power. She was once married to a city official named Frank Maltese, 19 years her senior, who also apparently worked as a bookie for a mobster with the unhappy name Rocco Infeliz. In 1990, Frank Maltese pled guilty to mob-related gambling charges. But he hadn't started to serve his time when the then-town president died. Frank Maltese was the heir apparent, but facing prison time, he had his wife appointed to the job. She'd also been working in the city government. He died the same year she took office, in 1993, and she named the town's public safety building after him. We were unable to determine if it is the only government building in Illinois named after a convicted mobster. The white constituents of Cicero feared that having Mexican-Americans in town meant Hispanic gangs were coming to town. And in fact, in some neighborhoods, there was some new gang activity. Betty Lauren Maltese put in place a series of ordinances that were so aggressive that, in fact, they were found to violate the United States Constitution. First, there was a measure to limit the number of people who could live in any one residence, apparently aimed at big Hispanic families. Then a measure that would seize the cars of suspected gang members and one that would evict gang members from town. The city started suing the parents of kids who were in gangs. Ray Hanania worked for Betty Lauren Maltese starting in 1993 and describes the kind of debates that would surround these ordinances. One of the ideas we came up with was when you arrest a street gang member, put him to some public use, make him sweep the streets, you know, make him clean windows, make him scour the graffiti off the garage doors. It seemed like a great idea. And Betty just needed to take it one step further. She wanted to make him wear a pink apron. And, it, and the logic was good. I mean, when you think about the logic, she wanted to embarrass. She knew that the power of street gangs wasn't just being a member. It was the peer pressure and intimidation. So put a pink apron on him. Let your tough friends see you sweeping the curves. <laughs> It wasn't exactly a good idea because I remember it went into the board meetings. I know a lot of us argued against it, but again, you know, she has a way of prevailing over everything in Cicero. Um, one of the candidates running against her brought a pink apron to town hall just before the election and said, yeah, I like the idea of the pink apron. Let's start with your husband, who is a street gang member, too. <laughs> and it just kind of the whole city, the whole uh, town board meeting just kind of erupted into pandemonium. Everybody yelling <laughs> and this pink apron being waved in the air and Betty screaming at the guy and the guy screaming at her and, you know, the police intervening. It was just uh, a mini uh, 1968 Chicago Democratic riot. In putting together today's radio program, we tried a number of times to get an interview with Betty Lauren Maltese, but were always turned down by her spokesman, Dave Donahue. Generally, as a rule, she just, you know, doesn't give interviews. Is she giving any interviews during the campaign? I mean, she's running for... Not so far. We asked for a copy of her schedule. Maybe we could watch her at a fundraiser or meeting with the town committee. No, we were told. They don't give out her schedule because of threats on her life. 
Over the last four years, she's had so many different uh, ordinances and civil lawsuits filed against gangs that they've become very angry and they've taken it out on her in terms of threats against her and her family. When's the last time? How often does that happen? Uh, I don't really talk to the police chief about it much. He takes it all in, and a lot of it's been turned over to the attorney general and the state's attorney as well. So we checked with the attorney general and state's attorney, and they told us that, in fact, no one's reported any threats on her life, which brings us to the real reason she doesn't do interviews. She's got a 99% name ID rate in this town and uh, like a 70% approval rate. Uh, She doesn't really enjoy the media spotlight, and she doesn't need, you know, media attention to win her election. Under Betty Lauren Maltese, Cicero cops would stop Mexican-Americans for ordinary traffic violations and demand to see their green cards. Town Hall ordered a bank that flew the Mexican flag to lower it. Police broke up a baptism party with tear gas. When David Niebuhr moved to town to run the police department in 1998, this is what he found. You know, officers were shaking down Hispanics uh, on a regular basis. I learned within just the the first couple of days that the quote-unquote gang unit was arresting Hispanics, sometimes 25 to 30 people at a time, and and their crime was standing on a corner. Uh, There was absolutely no probable cause whatsoever for the arrest of these Hispanics other than they were Hispanic. Here's Niebuhr's story. It's a brief one, but that's only because his stay in Cicero was brief. He'd actually been brought in by Maltese to reform the police department, or at least that's what he'd been told. Then came his undoing. He found some evidence suggesting that the towing company that does the town's towing might be selling stolen cars, and he told the FBI. The company, Ram Recovery, also happens to be one of the largest contributors to the town president's campaign fund. Betty Lauren Maltese publicly called Niebuhr a nitwit, and fired him after just four months on the job. The police department shipped Niebuhr his personal belongings. One item was a statue of a policeman holding the hand of a little boy. This was all in uh, styrofoam, peanut-type thing wrapping. The head of the police officer had been twisted off and laid nicely inside with, with with the rest of it. When we asked Cicero spokesman Dave Donahue why Niebuhr was fired, he said it wasn't because he was cooperating with the FBI, but because he simply mishandled town documents. What David Niebuhr did in a misguided attempt to either make himself look better or to, you know, ingratiate himself with federal officials, decided to turn over all the original towing records to them without making a copy. But in a case like that, wouldn't it be a simple matter just to get the feds to make copies and send them back? It would have been. And if they and the town attorney was going to do that, and he specifically told uh, Niebuhr, I believe, well, just hold on, we're going to make a copy, and then we're going to give it to him. And he, on his own of his, of his own volition, decided to turn over all the records, uh, all the original records that could have been copied, and it caused a very serious problem in the town administration. No, but I mean, once once the town found out that he had turned over the originals, couldn't they just go to the feds and say, you know, make us copies and send these back? It doesn't seem like that serious a thing. I don't know if they give you back records after they've gotten them. I don't, you know, I couldn't tell you that. The towing company Ram Recovery was never indicted and has denied any wrongdoing.
When I meet with real estate agent Armando Gonzalez, he tells me a series of horror stories about how the town of Cicero seemed to target his real estate firm with all sorts of rules that they didn't apply to other realtors. Rules that cost him literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. His company went from being the largest real estate firm in town, 48 sales agents and a huge office space, to being run out of Cicero, nearly bankrupted. We, we did not know how to respond to the problem that we had, but agents, agents were having problems with inspections, with uh, uh, us not being able to get the compliance. And the rumor out there was that we were in trouble with the town, so people didn't want to give us business anymore. When Armando Gonzalez took Cicero to court, a judge ruled that, in fact, he had been treated differently from other firms. So why did Town Hall single him out for such punitive treatment? Gonzalez's lawyer suggested it was because he was a Mexican-American, and more than anybody, was building a new wave of low-cost homes for Mexican-Americans. Though Town Hall was hoping to slow the Hispanic migration to town this way, it doesn't seem like a very effective strategy. Perhaps he just wasn't doing business the Cicero way. On the witness stand, Gonzalez told the story of how he needed a certain town permit once. He was sent to meet with one of Betty Lauren Maltese's advisors, who told him he'd get the permit, but he should be sure to take care of Betty. He sent her flowers. Presumably, this was not enough caring. Maltese's spokesman, by the way, denies that this happened, and the town is appealing the case. Whatever the truth is, Gonzalez's problems with the town, like David Niebuhr's, don't seem to be only about race. And this is part of what makes all this so complicated. At some point, it seems, Town Hall decided that it didn't matter what race ended up living in Cicero. What mattered is that they played by Cicero rules. Those rules, Gonzalez says, are remarkably familiar for someone like him who grew up in Mexico. This town that's made life so hard for Mexican-Americans, he says, actually runs a lot like the old one-party government in Mexico. I mean, it's like a government that shouldn't exist in this country. I don't know why these things keep happening in this town. It seems like uh, somehow they are untouchable. (laughs) They do whatever they want. The one difference between the Cicero government and the old PRI party that ran Mexico, he says, is that in Mexico, after 70 years, people voted the old guard out. Why that hasn't happened in Cicero, in a minute, from our own PRI, Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Most weeks on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you all sorts of different stories on that theme. But today we're devoting our entire show to a brief history of Cicero, Illinois, which is directly next to Chicago, the town of 85,000 Cicero is, and how Cicero for decades tried to keep the world at bay, and what happened when the world refused to stay at bay. 
This special edition of our show today is co-hosted by journalist Alex Kotlowitz. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, War by Other Means. So Hispanics were sometimes treated badly by town government. But this is a democracy. Hispanics make up three-fourths of the town's population. How hard could it be to vote out the current administration and vote in somebody of their own? That's what Joseph Mario Moreno thought anyway. He's a county commissioner. He moved to town about a year ago and let it be known that he was planning to challenge Betty Lauren Maltese for town president. Moreno was well-connected. It looked like the first time an Hispanic candidate could win. So town officials introduced a referendum, lengthening the residency requirement to run for president from a year to a year and a half. This would have kept Moreno out of the race, and it so alarmed a federal judge that he knocked the referendum off the ballot and then told the town that for the next five years, federal monitors would be sent to Cicero to watch over every election. Then on December 15th of last year, Moreno and his wife were coming home from a late-night party in Chicago. He claims they were tailed by an unmarked Cicero police car, and as they entered Cicero, they spotted another cruiser parked with its lights off, right on the border. We did both simultaneously say, they're going to stop us, they're waiting for us. I was given a field sobriety tests, um, passed those tests. Four and a half hours later, I found I was charged with a DUI. I asked to take a breathalyzer. I was declined. Police officers indicated to me, I got to do what I was told to do, quote. You know, they claimed that it was a random stop. I drive a black navigator with Moreno plates. You could smell something foul in that whole incident. I mean, that incident baptized me into Cicero politics. If this was a smear campaign, Moreno made it easy for his opponents. Because of a previous DUI conviction, it's actually illegal for him to drive at night at all. As Betty Warren Maltese's spokesman, Dave Donahue, happily points out, He said he was framed, but you cannot get framed for driving on a revoked license. Either you were driving on a revoked license or you weren't. And that's why, to this day, he still, you ask him, were you driving that night? He says he won't answer. He refuses to say. And that's true. We asked him. Did I read, too, though, that you weren't supposed to be driving? That's assuming I was driving. That's one of the things we won't discuss because we want to keep them thinking. Um... Just to be clear, under the terms of when you're allowed to drive, was it legal for you to drive uh, at at all after 7 p.m. that night? Assuming I was driving, absolutely not. Regardless, the attorney general didn't see enough in the case to prosecute Moreno. Then in February, the Maltese campaign tried another tactic, which led the local news that night. Political rivals of Cook County Commissioner Joseph Mario Moreno first accused him of beating one of his ex-wives and failing to support their child, citing 1974 divorce files in which a Diana Moreno claims a Joseph Moreno subjected her to repeated mental cruelty. We will no longer accept a fallen leader anymore. It is hurting our community, it will hurt our youth, and it will hurt everyone. Problem was, they had the wrong guy as Moreno told reporters at his own press conference later that day. They're greatly mistaken. That Joseph Moreno in that 74 divorce case is not me. (laughs) 
In the hands of the right candidate, such a blatant and botched attempt at character assassination could be spun into political gold. But Moreno hasn't really capitalized on the opportunities handed him. What's more, Moreno is rather soft on specifics about what he'll do for Cicero. He leans a lot more on the big general statements about how it's time to elect an Hispanic. When we asked him why he's campaigning for this job, here's what he said. Why am I doing it? I guess I'm the chosen one. I have no idea. It needs to be done. And I think Cicero is long overdue for this change. When they start saying, well, we need a change, the change, it's too late. It's too late. The change has been in process. The change happened. Frank Aguilera works for Betty Warren Maltese. And he says compared to when he first moved to Cicero, things have definitely improved. This is nothing. I mean, I was jumped many times 25 years ago. And the police looking at me while I'm getting jumped 25 years ago because I'm Mexican. We met Aguilera back on primary night in February at Betty Warren Maltese's primary victory party. Yellow balloons everywhere, a buffet of chicken and mashed potatoes. About a third of the room was Hispanic. At one of the tables were members of the Mexican-American Chamber of Commerce from Cicero. They told me that they debated for a long time who to support in this election, that it was a close vote between them. But in the end, they decided on Betty. They liked the idea of an Hispanic candidate, but they just felt Moreno wasn't up to the job. Luis Rogel owns a travel agency and is treasurer of the chamber. He says, sure, the police in Cicero could use some sensitivity training. Sure, some things in town could still be improved. But he likes that Betty Maltese keeps a tight rein. He likes the clean streets and the crackdown on gangs. You know what? We knew that Cicero was tough, and that is the reason we, we moved here. When you talk to the Mexican-American uh, homeowners, obviously they like the security that they feel you know, with the current administration, with so many cops. They moved in into a town looking for a better way of life, and obviously they moved in because they thought that town of you know Cicero it's more secure than Chicago. You know, I mean, I grew up on 26th Street, and I know what that is. And and, uh, and I moved into Cicero because I I looked in the area, and, and it's uh, sure you know the cops are tough, you know, but really realistically that that is what I want. Betty Warren Maltese's campaign slogan is. She's tough because she cares. It's actually this combination of toughness and caring that's new about her politics. At some point in her tenure, it must have become clear that she'd never stay in office if she only responded to the flood of Hispanics with hostile ordinances and punitive policing. To those old-school Cicero tactics, she's added the more modern approach of maintaining power by sharing it, or at least seeming to share it. And so today in Cicero, there's an odd mix of hostility and accommodation all happening at the same time. She's helped build five schools for the new Hispanic families in town. There are lots of Hispanic faces at Town Hall. Three of the four town trustees are now Hispanic. Maltese's assistant is Hispanic. And she just announced a minority set-aside program, funneling public money to minority-owned businesses. And before she takes the stage at her own victory party, there's this. Bienvenidos. Hoy es un día muy feliz. Town trustee Romero Gonzalez gives a speech. He thanks the campaign workers, threatens gangs who supposedly disrupted voting, and concludes with this. Que viva Betty! People yell Betty and Viva, and then there she is. We finally see her in person, Betty Warren Maltese, looking a bit like Elizabeth Taylor during the John Warner years. 
a middle-aged woman in black pantsuit, heavy black mascara, long eyelashes, a crown of teased, fluffed-up hair. Given the ham-handedness of her attacks on Moreno, she handles the crowd and the press, there are a half-dozen TV cameras present, like a seasoned political pro. She has a certain charisma. Incredibly, one of the first things she does is actually thank the federal monitors who came to town to keep an eye on her. I want to thank the outside agencies, especially the federal monitors that came in, because I know it was a tedious task for them, and I'm sure they did not want to be here. And I hope that they continue uh, to remain with us, because I think they'll see that the problem was not with the Republicans, but... Not long after, she reads the day's lopsided voting results to her fellow Republicans. Uh, Republican uh, ballots cast for 7,499. <laughs> Democrats were 3,798. Well, come on. I mean, it is a democracy. In the end, twice as many people voted for Maltese in this primary as for all the other candidates in both parties combined. It's a measure of what a long shot this race is for Moreno, who'll be her Democratic opponent in the general election in April. So if the media wants to leave so we can party, and I'll tell you again, I was never afraid against Mario running. I was afraid of him driving. Moreno's only chance is if he can bring thousands of new voters out to the polls, something no one in Cicero has ever done. Meanwhile, Betty Lauren Maltese has amassed a million dollars to spend on the campaign. A huge amount, a crazy amount by any standard, for an election in a town that you can drive from end to end in just 10 minutes. Thank you, and Viva Cicero! Act 4. They say our love is here to stay. A town like Cicero, what it produces is insiders and outsiders. And just as some people can become addicted to being on the inside of a system, you can get addicted to the rush of trying to bring the system down. This next story is the story of somebody who got stuck doing that, inadvertently, for a long, long time. Then he tried to get away. But that turned out not to be so easy. Alex tells the whole story, a warning to our listeners, that there is a possibly questionable word hidden somewhere in this story. This past October, Dave Boyle and his wife Nadine moved back to Cicero after being away for 10 years. I have unfinished business, he told me. Let me first, though, fill you in on Dave's first tenure in Cicero. He moved here in 1983 and accidentally stumbled into town politics. Early one morning on his way to a contracting job, Dave drove past Mr. C's, a biker's bar on the corner. Some guys were standing around outside drinking, and there on the sidewalk lay a biker who'd been stabbed to death. It was shocking. Dave wanted the bars shut down. So he went to see the town's deputy liquor commissioner, who was also a police officer. He was told to back off. Many of the taverns were connected to the mob. And he told me that not only is there nothing I can do about it, but if I did anything about it, not only would they kill you, Boyle, but they might kill me, and that's not going to happen. So you just go away. And he didn't say it that nice. So you go to this assistant liquor commissioner and he tells you this. If it were me, I probably would say, okay, fine. Thank you, yeah. else, I'm gone. <laughs> I just thought, well, basically I thought, F- you. You're not going to say, I'm, I'm Dave Boyle. I walk upright and I asked the police officer to do the right thing. And he told me the mob won't let you do it. And I thought, well, what kind of, what kind of pussy are you? 
A word here about Dave Boyle. He is a Vietnam vet and is built like a rugby player. Under different circumstances, Dave might have been a barroom brawler. He's loud, curses lots, likes to brag about what a good fighter he is. In short, the perfect person to take on Cicero. In fact, it's hard to imagine any other kind of person being willing to take on the town. At the time, Cicero still had a whole thriving district full of strip joints and prostitutes and bars that stayed open till 6 a.m. Dave fought to get Mr. C's shut down and then went to the police department and in his typically belligerent way, ordered them to close down five other bars. Twelve hours later, my garage blew up with my cars and my and all my tools. And you say it blew up? It, yeah, they blew it up. You mean it caught fire? Or? Yeah, it caught fire. That's what it did. Yeah, it caught fire. It was just a, <laughs> it was a coincidence. Um, it was... Uh, it took about ten minutes to burn the whole thing to the ground, cars and all. As you've probably observed about Cicero by this point, it doesn't like to be told what to do, especially by outsiders. So you can imagine then how angry the town leaders were when Dave and his wife collected enough signatures for a referendum to shut the bars at 2 a.m. Then the referendum passed by a three-to-one margin, but nothing happened. The then-town president ignored the vote, which transformed Dave into a kind of minor celebrity with stories about him in the newspapers and on TV. He was talking with the FBI. So what might otherwise have been a fairly small matter, the time bars should close, suddenly became quite big. Dave and Adine soon found a dead snake slung over their front porch railing, and the police harassed Dave, arresting him or threatening to arrest him some 11 times. It all took over their lives, and it all got to Nadine. I didn't talk to my friends anymore because I felt so weird. I felt um, different than they did. They were having babies and, and, you know, decorating their houses with Laura Ashley things. And and I'm, you know, building a... Yeah, cleaning up burglar bars and cleaning up ashes from the garage. It was a completely different life, and the only people who seemed to understand us were... um, Reporters and people from the Crime Commission and the FBI. And other people from Cicero. And other people from Cicero. Here's how far it went. Dave made not one, but two bids for local office. But his bluntness and go-it-alone style didn't exactly win him votes. At one point, he posted a sign in the town president's office saying, Future Office of Dave Boyle. He lost both elections. After seven years of fighting town hall, Dave and Nadine decided it was time to go. Friends felt they were run out of town. And though Dave says that wasn't the case, it was. They were beaten down, drained, both emotionally and financially. And Nadine, quite frankly, just wanted to get the hell out of there. So they moved to Houston, Texas in 1990. Fast forward, ten years later. Dave's now a lawyer. He suggests to Nadine that, hey, maybe they move back. Nadine balks. So Dave promises Nadine, look, I won't get so involved this time around. They buy a brick bungalow this past October, and Dave soon wanders into town hall and sees some old faces. I was at the town hall. I can't remember uh, the exact date, but I was at the legal department a month, month and a half ago. And I was handing some papers in. And I looked to my right, and there I see 
Tony Accardo. <laughs> and he looked at me like he'd just seen a ghost. And I said, Mr. Accardo, good morning. And I approached him. I went to shake his hand. And he used to be the head of the building department? He was, he was the head of the building department. And many of those guys have fallen on hard times here recently. Um, he made the sign of the cross in front of me. He says, you're back. Oh, my God. And he made a quick sign of the cross. He says, thank God I'm retired. <laughs> you can't get to me. Dave notices changes in the town. The strip joints are gone. The bars finally close at 2 a.m. Lots of people everywhere speaking Spanish, which he likes. But the town, he learns, is still up to its old tricks. When he and Nadine settled on their house, they were asked to sign a document which would give the town the right to search their home for housing code violations any time it wanted. They do that to every Mexican that buys a house in this town. And, well, just look around who's buying a house in this town. They're Mexican people. They don't read English. They got three three earners to pay off one mortgage. And they're all going to live in a house. And they're all signing these affidavits that give the police the right to enter, anybody from town hall, the right to enter their house without notice and without a warrant. Dave insisted the town change the wording of this document, which they did that same day, and that got the ball rolling. Soon he got involved in the upcoming elections, working for a candidate who's opposing Betty Lauren Maltese. For Nadine, as you might imagine, it all began to feel familiar. He said, it's going to be different this time. I'm a lawyer. None of those same things are going to happen. Don't worry. I won't get involved in politics. I won't run for office, and I certainly won't use our money to do it. And I haven't used any of our money, <laughs> I, except what I gave away. <laughs> so he, I caved. I did. But you've been back now for three months. Has he kept his word? Uh, since October, uh, about not getting... Not getting back involved. <laughs> he, he hasn't quite kept... He's a lying <laughs> mother <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> I told him once when we, he was starting to get involved with this recent campaign, I said, Dave, I see you going down that whirlpool. It's taking you down again. And he actually pulled back a little bit. He did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Not much, but he did. I asked Dave what his next move is. I'm going to build an attached garage, he tells me. No, how about in terms of the town, I ask. He smiles and says, that's part of it. I have to apply for a permit, he says. That's his plan. Say bad things about the town president in public, and then apply for a permit. These days, one of the most interesting things about Cicero, despite everything we've told you this hour about town hall antagonizing its own citizens, is this. If you actually walk the neighborhoods and talk to people about how they're getting along with their neighbors, most people seem to be getting along just fine. There are lots of stories of older white residents who were wary at first, but then warmed up. There are still rough moments, but things seem way more civil, way more friendly than you would expect, given the town's history. Alex put together this story about three neighbors. Here's another way to measure the changes in Cicero. We met a woman named Loretta Rivera, who moved to town back in the mid-'80s. She found it to be so hostile to Hispanics that she and her family moved out. Five years later, after more Hispanics had settled in Cicero, she tried again. This time it was easier. Loretta told me about two of her neighbors, Annie and Nancy, both of them white, both of them longtime Cicero residents. She considered one of them to be very accepting, and one not accepting at all. 
but the reality may be more complicated than that. You know, really like red Here's Loretta with one of the women, <laughs> Annie Ryder, in Annie's kitchen. They're close friends, us, you know. even though Loretta, now a second grade teacher, is 40, and Annie, a widow, is 74. Loretta's explaining to Annie what it was like the first time she and her husband Conrado moved to Cicero. I told you about when we used to rent uh, on 53rd Chord, the uh, Polish guy that almost got into a fight with Conrado. His big problem was that we were parking in front of his house. I never told you that. It was Christmas Eve, and um, he was a little tipsy, and he came out screaming at us, telling us, you know, you should go back to your country. Why the hell are you here? You shouldn't park in front of my yard. I pay taxes. You don't pay anything. And I remember Conrado, because being so so angry, I mean, I had to literally grab him because he was going to hit the guy. And I remember Conrado, out of frustration, he didn't know what he said. His his, his English was, was very broken. And I remember him telling him, you Poland, go back to Polish or something. I said, you even said it wrong. You don't say it that way. <laughs> And he also, again, blamed us, you know, that that's why Cicero was in such a bad rut, because yeah, ever since yeah. Mexicans started moving here, we were ruining the town and blah, blah, blah. Every this town has been ruined so many times, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, forget it. <laughs> We usually talk about how newcomers assimilate to their new environment, but as I listened to Annie and Loretta, I was struck by how it was Annie who assimilated to the newcomers. Did she walking. tell you we used to walk every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning? 5.30, there were times at 5.30. Have you learned any Spanish? Yo no sé. <laughs> she learns it and then she forgets it. Yeah. I remember when we first started walking. Remember we <laughs> made a deal? Every week I was going to teach you a new word. And then the next day I would ask her and she would go, huh? Ah, forget it. <laughs> and then we would come and have coffee. Of the 12 homes on Annie's and Loretta's Street, seven are owned by Hispanics, five by whites. It isn't that the white homeowners who stayed were necessarily more tolerant than those who left, but some of the older folks have lived here all their lives and just didn't want to go, despite frequent appeals from realtors. I remember getting something in the mail, something about um, if, you don't, if you're not comfortable where you live, if, you, if your safety, if you fear for your safety, yeah. call this number, we'll sell your house. Oh, I called up that time. I you called did? up the realtor. It was blockbusting. And you called the realtor? Yeah. And what did you tell him? I yelled. <laughs> he said, you're doing the same thing as the blockbusters that did it on the west side, exactly the same thing. That stuff really, it's go- to my mind, it's goofiness. You know, it's just, it's just, it's somebody out to make a buck is what it is. When I first met Loretta and I asked her about her Anglo neighbors, she volunteered a story that happened when she first moved in 12 years ago. It clearly still bothers her. It involves the other older white woman on the block, Nancy Shovlin. Nancy's 70 and has lived in Cicero her entire life. Nancy has actually been friends with Annie since she was 18. In fact, Nancy found Annie her house. Loretta remembers Nancy making comments to the effect that the quality of life in Cicero had declined since Mexican-Americans moved in, that there was more of a gang problem. And, and she would look at me like if it was my fault, and I would tell her, Nancy, we're not all the same. 
Just like in every race, there's good apples and bad apples. Do you see my kids in gangs, you know? But I, I don't think I ever, I ever really, um, how can I put it, mean or understand. So I went to visit Nancy, whose home is just three doors down from Loretta's, and I was kind of surprised by what I found. I'm perfectly content here. And I have to say this, we see a lot more flowers getting planted around here than what we did with the old-timers. <laughs> well, they do. They're, they're planting yeah, gardens and uh, fixing houses up. And a lot of the homes were let go by the older people. They weren't caused by the Hispanics moving in and destroying them. They were already unkempt buildings. And now the Hispanic people have come in, and many of them are really trying to fix things up. It turns out that Nancy helped Dave Boyle close down Mr. C's, the biker's bar, going door-to-door with petitions. And she raised $600 from neighbors to rebuild Boyle's charred garage. For Nancy, like Annie, this was her home, and so it never occurred to her to move. Have you learned Spanish at all? I took one course of conversational Spanish at Martin College, went back for the second course, and they didn't have enough students, so they didn't have the course. I used to go to one little store over here when I was taking the course, and a greeting in Spanish is, hola, like, hello. <laughs> Every day I'd go in the star, and before I walked in, I thought, no, I got this right this time. And I'd go in and I'd go, hello. <laughs> and they just crack up and they no, that's wrong. <laughs> so here she comes again, you know. <laughs> have, you, have you acquired a taste for Mexican food at all? Oh, yeah, sure. I make Mexican stuff. My son-in-law is Mexican. I couldn't ask for a better son-in-law. Your son-in-law is Mexican. Yes, and his family's wonderful. And um, did you speak any Spanish with him? Or? No, and he doesn't. He and I told him when the kids were little. I said, "Al, teach your kids Spanish," but he didn't want to do that. I can't be real straight with you for a moment. I was curious to me when I talked to Loretta. Loretta Finally, I got up the courage to tell Nancy that Loretta thought she had some hostility towards Hispanics. Oh, not, I don't know why she'd even think that. The only thing I can think of is they have a dog, a child dog, and when he was a puppy, they used to let him run wild all the time. And the, My daughter picked him up twice. He almost got hit by a car. We heard the car screech, and there's Jenny picking the dog up. And she yelled at Loretta finally. She said, keep the dog in. He's going to die because we had a child, and we loved it. That's the only incident, though, that I can think of. Nancy doesn't recall making the kinds of remarks that Loretta complained about, though she does remember telling Loretta that there was a gang problem and that a lot of the Hispanic people don't keep tabs of their children. This is where we get into the area where she and Loretta may never see eye to eye. Nancy doesn't see statements like these as offensive. She just thought they were statements of fact. Before the gang kids weren't here, now they were. And there were young kids hanging on the street corners late at night. From Loretta's point of view, it was clearly offensive. Though it's not as if Loretta is angry at Nancy. Weary is more like it. And maybe they both said to me, when the weather warms and they're hanging out in their backyard, they'll have a chance to talk. Or maybe they'll run into each other at Mary Queen of Heaven, the church on the corner. (laughs) This is my pal. And this is Virginia Diaz. Which brings me back to Annie. One Sunday, I attended Mary Queen of Heaven with her. We walked from the sacristy to the choir loft. Not very far, but a 20-minute journey with Annie, who stops to say hello to everyone in her path. This is Armando Herrera, and he can't sing. The best good-looking guy. He he can't sing. You can't sing. Well, you don't want me to. That's That's right. I don't. There's something remarkably easy about Annie, and it's what I think in the end so drew Loretta to her. 
Annie has for 30 years been the musical director at the church. The organ's located in the balcony, at the rear of the church. And from there, Annie, perched on a wooden piano bench, has watched this row change. On Sundays, she plays organ for the English Mass at 8.30, and then for the Spanish Mass that starts right after. So, Annie, can you understand the sermon? I can get the gist of it. Do you want to know what the gist of it is? Um, the basic gist of it is, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. That's the basic. Mm -hmm. This church's congregation once was all white. On the morning I was there, at the English Mass, there were maybe 150 worshipers spread out in the pews, all, as Annie joked, over the age of 90. At the Spanish Mass, the pews filled with a thousand people, mostly families. Some couldn't find seats and so stood along the walls of the church. Over the years, Annie has learned the Spanish hymns. The changes in Cicero, as Annie will tell you, haven't made the town better or worse. They just are what they are. Annie now has her hair done by a Mexican-American because, quite simply, it's the closest hair salon. It's just around the corner. The last time I saw her, she was talking about going to the traditional Quintanera celebration for Loretta's younger daughter. It's being held at a place in Cicero called the European American Hall. Some things change more slowly than others. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. Well, our program was produced today by Blue Chevney, Alex Kotlowitz, and me, with Alex Bloomberg, Jonathan Goldstein, and Starley Kine, senior producer Julie Snyder. Production help from Todd Bachman and Annie Baxter. Special thanks today to Bob Lucas, Rob Perel, John Lovey, David Mendez, and to everyone in Cicero who we interviewed, who we did not have time to fit onto our broadcast. Musical help from Chris Ligon and the Record Roundup in Chicago. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, you know, who used to visit Cicero and say things like, You won't be sorry for letting me in, Mr. Vittori. I'll shoot square with you. I'll do anything you say. I ain't afraid of nothing. No, he isn't. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Well, I know what's right I got just one life PRI Public Radio International